All right, yesterday we talked about different ways we relate to God. We talked about the definition of radical, how the culture says a radical life is one spent in relentless pursuit of your dreams and desires and you employ God to help you achieve them. The church says, no, a radical life is one spent on mission for God and achieving great things for him in the world. And then we came back to the reality that a truly radical Christian life is not about Christian consumerism or Christian activism, but it's about living rooted in communion with God, right where you are. Today I want to look at a different aspect of our life with God, and that is the issue of transformation. How is it that we actually change? Now you've been students here at Northwestern, hopefully you're gaining a, a great bit of knowledge about your faith, about scripture, about doctrine, theology, history, all those important aspects of our faith. But if you're in it for any length of time, you may eventually come to this awkward moment of realization that you are filling your mind with all kinds of amazing truth, but you're the same old rotten person you've always been. We have this disposition, this assumption that knowledge automatically leads to transformation. And we think that way because we tend to be of a Protestant tradition that came about during the Enlightenment that said knowledge is everything. And if you just put the right content in a person's head, it will change their behavior. If you know the right thing to do, you're going to do it. And yet over and over again, we find that that's not the case. Dr. Robert Coles taught at Harvard University for many years in the philosophy department. And there was a woman in his moral reasoning class one year who decided to drop out of the course because the other students were harassing her so constantly. And she met with Dr. Coles in his office to explain why she was dropping his course. And this is what she said to him. I've been taking all these philosophy courses and we talk about what's good. But how do you teach people to be good? What's the point of knowing good if you don't try to become good? That's a question that a lot of us in the Christian tradition wrestle with. We might know what's good, but how do we actually become good? How do our lives change? How do our behaviors reflect more of Christ and less of our sinful selves? In the church, in the Christian community, we talk all the time about transformation. And we carry certain assumptions about how that process happens. So today what I want to do is kind of unpack our assumptions about transformation. Why the things we often do to pursue transformation bear no fruit. And what does transformation really look like in Christ? So to do that, we're going to look at two different passages. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. If you have a copy of the Bible, I encourage you to... Have it out. We'll flip a little bit. If you just want to follow along, that's okay. This first story from the Old Testament comes from Exodus 34. It's an amazing account of the Israelites gathered around Mount Sinai and, and Moses ascending the mountain. If you remember your Old Testament history at all, or if you've studied this, or have seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston on TV every year around Easter, Passover, you may have some image in your mind of this. God descends, his presence descends upon the mountain, and it, it trembles at his presence, and there's this black billowing smoke, and it's a kind of terrifying, violent scene, and the people are frightened. They won't go anywhere near the mountain, but Moses goes up, and he meets with the Lord, and at the top of the mountain, there God gives him his commandments for the people. And while he's at the top of the mountain, Moses hears the Lord's voice, but he does not actually see the Lord. And in this great moment of incredible courage and boldness, Moses says to God, show me your glory. 
And the Lord is pleased with Moses' request, and he responds this way, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. Moses asks to see God's glory, and he says, I will show you my goodness. Now, there's a, a link. It's a, it's a deep theological link here that you need to understand between God's glory and God's goodness. We speak of God's glory in reference to this pure, radiant light that surrounds his presence. And that light is a visible representation of his character. So when Moses says, show me your glory, this light that is God, he says, I will show you my goodness because the glory and his goodness are the same thing. They represent the character of God. So this is the story where the glory of God passes in front of Moses. He sees him. The Lord reveals himself. And then in verse 29, we read what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, these are the Ten Commandments, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they became afraid. So when God's glory was revealed to Moses, somehow it, it kind of, it singed him. It rubbed off on him. And as Moses comes down the mountain, he's unaware of the fact that now God's glory the reflection of God's character, his goodness, is radiating from his face, and the people freak out about this. Verse 31. Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near to him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord again. So this veil is an important piece of the story. The people are frightened by Moses' appearance. It's kind of creepy to see a guy whose skin is glowing, right? Like We would assume they had some kind of radioactive accident. and Maybe they're going to turn into the Hulk or something these days. But... It was creepy for the Israelites to see this. They didn't like it. So to protect the Israelites from his appearance, Moses put this veil over his face. But the pattern was every time he went up the mountain to meet with the Lord, he'd remove the veil. He'd get a blast of God's glory. He'd come down. The people would see the glory of God on Moses' face. And they'd go, okay, Moses has been with the Lord again. We better listen to him. He'd give God's commandments. He'd put the veil back up. This is how it worked. In the Old Testament, the pattern of transformation is actually pretty simple. The way you are transformed is by reflecting the glory of God. You find yourself in a place, a mountaintop, a temple, some place where God's presence is evident, and you put yourself in that circumstance, and, and like a sort of divine tanning bed, you are infused with that radiance. You're transformed, and you emerge a different person, radiating the glory, the goodness of God. But that's not the whole story. Because in the New Testament, in the other passage I want to look at, the Apostle Paul gives a slightly different take on Exodus 34 and Moses' experience on the mountaintop. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There Paul talks about a different form of transformation. What he says is a better one. In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is arguing that what's been revealed in Christ is more glorious than what was revealed on the mountain to Moses. What occurred to Moses was good. It was glorious. It was full of God's presence. But Paul's saying, now something even better has come. 
And in chapter 3, verse 12, he says this. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face, and this is important, to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Drawing from rabbinical Jewish tradition, Paul adds an important detail to the story that is not found in Exodus 34. If you only read Exodus 34, you assume the reason Moses puts a veil over his face is because he didn't want the Israelites to be frightened by his appearance. But Paul says that's not actually what was going on. The real reason Moses put a veil over his face is because he didn't want the Israelites to realize that the glory was fading away. That it wasn't permanent. That behind the veil, the radiance of God's goodness was slowly dimming. And Moses was returning back to his old self. So with this detail, we have a different understanding of what Moses was actually doing. He'd go up the mountaintop. He'd encounter God's presence. He would be transformed. He'd come down. He'd radiate God's goodness. He'd put the veil up because behind it, like batteries running out of juice, like a flashlight that was slowly dimming, the glory was fading away. And then he'd go back up and get recharged. He'd get zapped again by God's presence and come back and radiate his glory. This is what happened over and over and over again. Here's the key idea I want you to get from Moses' story. External experiences do not bring lasting transformation. Moses' experience of God on the mountain was an external one. It was glorious. It was genuine, it was good, but it was temporary. It was not permanent change. Now, I doubt you've experienced exactly what Moses has, right? You probably have not ascended a mountain and discovered God's presence there and been radiated by it. But to some degree or another, we have all experienced what Moses experienced. We have all had those experiences, those mountaintop moments where we feel like we have encountered God powerfully in our lives. And we come away from those mountaintop moments and we are convinced we've been changed. We're convinced that our lives will never be the same. It may be uh, a conference you've gone to, a retreat you did, an overseas missions trip. It could be something that's happened here on campus or a chapel service that just was transformative for you. And you have that experience and you come away going, oh my goodness, things have been revealed to me that I never thought possible. God's power and his goodness and his glory and his grace and all these things have been unleashed on me and I am a new person. And you come away from that mountaintop convinced that you will never be the same. And you make some kind of promises, right? Like, oh, that old habit that I've been stuck in, that, I'm, I'm done with that, it's, beside, it's over, I'm different. I'm going to be the kind of person that God wants me to be going forward. I'm going to be disciplined about reading scripture. I'm going to be more forgiving and gracious to the people who annoy me. I'm dedicating my life to whatever it is that I think God wants me to do in the world. I am a new person. I am going to make Mother Teresa look like Nicki Minaj or something. I am going to be the greatest thing God has ever seen on the earth, right? I am different. I'm changed. You talk to your roommates about it. You talk to your friends. Maybe you convince your parents, whatever. And you mean it. It's genuine. It's real. You've had this epiphany, this mountaintop experience. And then what happens? Two days later, the glory fades. The high is over. 
The buzz has passed. The transformation you were certain was genuine turns out to be another temporary spiritual high. And you find that you are the same person you always were. When that happens, we respond in one of two ways. One way we respond is, is uh, this is going to sound strange, but we become kind of worship junkies. And here's what I mean by that. You've had some experience that was impactful, and then you get a couple days distance from that experience, the glory fades, you're the same old person, and the thought is, I need to get back up that mountain. Just like Moses, I need to get back up that mountain and get recharged again. I need to go back to that place, back to that experience, back to that church, back to that retreat, back to that event, whatever. I need to feel that again. I need to get that buzz. And so you go again. But you find that, oh, man, it's not quite the same as it used to be. It's not quite as invigorating as the first time. You economics uh, majors may be familiar with the term called the law of diminishing returns, Right? It's, uh, I mean, I have a tendency towards sugar addiction, and that first hit of sugar feels really good. Like that first M&M, mm. that 10th or 20th M&M, not as good, right? Diminishing returns. This is what happens when you build resistance to a drug. That first hit is great, but then it takes more and more and more to get that same buzz. And so after a while, you go, oh, this church was great when I first started coming, but I don't know, I'm used to it. I'm used to the music, I'm used to the preacher. I need something bigger, something better. Let's go to that new thing down the road that everyone's saying is kind of the hot commodity right now, flavor of the month. Let's go to that bigger, better church. You know, I heard they have smoke machines over there. <laughs> Lasers, too. Like, it's always, we always look for the bigger mountain. We jump from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop looking for that boost, that buzz, that exciting thing. And frankly, those of us in church ministry, we feed this problem. Because we want to attract a bigger crowd. We want to get more people. So we build the bigger building. We get the hotter young preacher. We get the better musician. And we just want to build a better mountaintop. Here's the second thing we do when the buzz wears off, when the glory fades. Like Moses, we don't just go from mountaintop to mountaintop. We also hide behind a veil. When we realize that I'm the same old rotten self I've always been, but I've been telling everybody I'm transformed or I'm a different person, we hide the truth of our lives. We don't literally hide behind a veil. Instead, we hide behind $7 billion in Jesus-branded merchandise. That's how much we sell every year in this country. You know what I'm talking about, right? We all know that person. Like, their whole wardrobe is just Jesus t-shirts. They've got the bumper stickers and the ichthus and the Christian jewelry. They probably have a Hebrew tattoo somewhere on their body. They don't even know really what it means. Right? They just look super spiritual and Christian. They have a Thomas Kincaid poster or painting in their dorm room. All the names of God from scripture. Cool Bible cover. Well, I don't know. Your wallpaper on your phone is some inspirational meme with some proverb on it. Like everything in your world is designed to tell the world, I'm a follower of Jesus. But scratch just beneath the surface, and what do you find? Anger, jealousy, lust, greed, bitterness. Not the fruit of the Spirit. That's what I mean by hiding behind a veil. Fake it till you make it. Surround yourself with Christian environments. Surround yourself with Christian merchandise and branding. We may not be good, but at least we'll look good. 
If you do it well enough, they might just ordain you and put you up on a platform. The Barna organization, as well as Gallup, did a survey of evangelical Christians in this country to determine what did their lifestyles actually look like. And here was their conclusion. Survey after survey demonstrates that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. They could find no statistical difference between the behaviors of evangelical Christians and those who don't claim to follow Jesus. What did they find to be different? Evangelical Christians were more likely to spend their money on Jesus-branded merchandise. Veils. Okay, now here's what I want to make sure you don't hear from me. The problem is not the mountaintop. The problem is not our worship gatherings. The problem is not our retreats or our missions trips. The problem is what we expect from them. I have been a part of gatherings, retreats, trips, where God's presence was palpable, real, genuine, just as Moses' experience on the mountain was real. God was there. It wasn't fabricated. It wasn't fake. A lot of times we gather for worship on a Sunday or in a place like this, and some of you have genuine encounters with the presence of God. Amen. That's a wonderful thing. The problem is not our experiences at these mountaintops. The problem is what we expect from them. We expect them to result in permanent transformation, and they were never designed to do that. Our expectations are what is out of whack, not the mountaintops. After Moses had his mountaintop experience, the Israelites throughout the Old Testament had a number of other genuine encounters with the Lord in which they experienced revival and repentance and recommitment to the Lord in his covenant, but again and again and again the glory faded. And the Israelites wandered away from their commitment to God and wandered after pagan gods and religions and were unjust to one another and kind of deteriorated into all kinds of depravity. And finally, through Jeremiah, the prophet, the Lord said to his people this, a time is coming when I will make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers through Moses when I led them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, because they broke that covenant. This is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's Jeremiah 31. This is the new covenant that Paul is talking about in Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The old covenant was an external one. It was given to Moses on a mountaintop. People encountered God on a mountaintop or in a temple. And the glory always faded. This new covenant is not like the one with Moses. It's not about transformation from the outside in. It's about transformation from the inside out. I will write my law on their heart not on stone. Look again at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Paul says, Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
Three times in these short verses, Paul talks about the Lord is the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and that the Spirit that dwells within us, this constant presence of God inside of us, gives us a connection with God, this new covenant. And the transformation that's at work in us is from the inside out. This is exactly the covenant that Jeremiah prophesied would come. The presence of God in us, Romans 8, 9 talks about that we belong to Christ because his spirit lives in us. Remember when the people encountered God on the mountain back in Exodus? The mountain trembled and the people were afraid. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. He's lifting language from Exodus to describe God on the mountain. But now he's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling from within you. The power of Sinai, the power of God that Moses experienced on the mountain is no longer on a mountain. It is in you through the presence of his spirit. We don't encounter God by climbing mountains anymore. We encounter God by discovering his spirit within us. Transformation now comes from the inside out, not the outside in. And Paul goes on to say that unlike Moses, the transformation of glory we experience doesn't fade away. Instead, it's always ever increasing. We who have the Spirit, he says, are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. This is the good news of the new covenant. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The reason we are able to take away our veils, in other words, the reason we don't have to fake it anymore or pretend, isn't because we're perfect. It isn't because we've eradicated all sin and ungodliness in our lives. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying the reason we can take away the veils and be honest about who we are is because whatever small degree of Christ-likeness I possess today, whatever small reflection of God's glory and his goodness is evident in me today, tomorrow it will be more. And next week it will be more. And next month it will be more. And the year after that it will be more. And God will bring to completion that which he began in me. Which means I don't have to fake it. I'm a rotten person. Ask my wife. I have a lot of shortcomings. But I can be honest about them because I know that God is at work within me. And if you come back a year from now and get to know me, you'll be like, you know what, Scott? You're slightly less of a jerk than you used to be. Many of our Christian communities have a, an epidemic of inauthenticity. Where we're just not honest. We hide behind veils. The way to create authentic Christian community, the way to remove the veils, is to go inward. To recognize that as flawed as I am, I'm a work in progress. And I don't have to be ashamed. Because the glory is not fading, it's only getting brighter. That gives us the courage to be real with one another. That gives us the honesty to confess our sins. That's what allows us to bear one another's burdens and encourage each other more and more. It's dropping the facades and being real. I hope you get the implications of this. It means if you really want to be transformed, stop looking for bigger, better external experiences and start cultivating a deep, 
inward communion with the Spirit. Dallas Willard said, it's the inner life of the soul that we must aim to transform, and then the behaviors will naturally and easily follow, but not the reverse. So much of the American church is built on mountaintop experiences. And the glory always fades. When what the new covenant calls us to is the inward experience of the Holy Spirit. Let me wrap up with a story of when this became evident for me. When I really first learned this lesson, I was a college student. I went to a large state school, about 15,000 students. But we had a significant ministry on that campus. Honestly, about 1,000 students every week showed up for this campus ministry. I guess about this many people in this room. We had hundreds of Bible studies going on around the campus. It was all student-led. It was amazing. When I was a freshman, I got involved in this campus ministry, and there was a senior who was one of the leaders of that ministry named Jason who was kind of the guy. Everyone admired him. Everyone thought he was, you know, all that in a bag of chips, as my wife would say. Just kind of the model of a godly student on this secular campus. So I became friends with Jason, admired him. He ends up graduating. I continued through my college years. I think it was my junior year, I was uptown, which is part of town where all the bars and restaurants were, and I happened to run into Jason, who had graduated two years earlier. But it was a little awkward because I ran into Jason, and um, to put it mildly, I, I ran into him as he was engaged in, let's just say, less than Christian activities. And he saw me see him, and it was really awkward. And afterwards, he came over to me and he said, listen, we need to go talk. So we left and went and talked, and he just broke into tears. I was like, what happened? You were the guy. You were you know, Mr. Christian on campus. And through his tears, he said, you know what? Four years in college, four years involved in that campus ministry, he said, I was carried along from week to week to week by the big event. I was carried along from fall retreat to Christmas conference to the spring break missions trip to the summer missions trip. And he said, I was on this cycle for four years and it was amazing. I had all these great experiences. And he says, then I graduated. And it all came crashing down. And I realized that my faith was built entirely on these external events. And I had no real faith in communion with God. And he just deteriorated. The glory faded. And as Jason's telling me this, I'm looking at him across the table and I'm realizing I'm looking at myself in two years. I'm on the exact same trajectory if I don't change something. And by God's grace, I did. I did two things that were really important. Number one, I found a mentor, an older man who had a, a quality that I did not, but desperately needed. He was a man of prayer. I had been taught how to share my faith. I had been taught how to study the scriptures. I had been taught how to speak and teach. I would even gone overseas at that point and started teaching the gospel in other countries. But no one had ever taught me how to pray. He did. And the other important thing I did is every week on Sunday afternoon, I drove five miles north of campus to a large state forest, 3,000 acres of trails and rivers, and I'd spend hours every Sunday afternoon just walking those trails in prayer and communion with God. Deepening my communion with the Holy Spirit. It was in those hours of solitude, in prayer, 
that I sensed God calling me into ministry. It was in those hours of solitude that I made the decision to marry my wife. It was in the solitude that I developed a rooted faith, a communion with God, and I am convinced I am only here today because of those hours alone in the forest. Transformation under the new covenant is from the inside out, not the outside in. If you're tired of hiding, if you're tired of veils, if you're tired of fakeness, if you're tired of being a spiritual junkie going from mountaintop to mountaintop looking for your next fix, go inward. Learn to pray. Find a mentor. Find solitude. And deepen your communion with God. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for these young people, that you would fill them with a deep desire to know you. That you would even fill them with a holy frustration over their lack of transformation or the external models that they've inherited. Give them a desire for something more, for something deeper. And Lord, equip them by your spirit. Equip them through your church, equip them through their sisters and brothers to pursue you, the one who dwells within them. May Northwestern be a campus of authenticity.